Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 30 years of law enforcement analysis experience, all with Richmond Police Department. In fact, she just retired in January of 2023. She's a teacher, author, and presenter here to talk about leadership in law enforcement. Please welcome Renee Richardson. Renee, how are we doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's great to be here. Has retirement set in yet? It's still very early. No, I, my goal was to take a month or a month and a half off, and I have yet to do that. Oh, boy, because <laughs> you just got straight into that to taking on your Four Directions Consulting, right? Yes, yes, very much so. Setting it up, and I also have a nonprofit that I'm looking to set up as well. So two things going on at once. Well, I guess you're not taking the relaxing route. No, no, I'm a busy body. (laughs) I have to stay busy. (laughs) So let's go back in the Wayback Machine. You're talking 30 years now. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Well, it's it's kind of funny. I never really applied for the position that I ended up getting in the police department. I applied for a clerk typist position and Next thing I know, I am pulled in to do start my background. I was never interviewed. And next thing I know, I'm the clerk typist working in the crime analysis unit back in 1992, which was a grant-funded position. And that's where my journey began. I didn't know I liked crime analysis. And, you know, you hear people say they had fallen into their positions, and that's what happened with me. Retrospect, I think I was put where I was supposed to be. And, you know, I was I was led there and I had wonderful supervisors who saw my potential to learn and to apply and to grow. And I slowly moved up the ranks and which is kind of ironic considering generally speaking in law enforcement for civilians, there's not a lot of movement within an organization. And for me to go from a clerk typist to an assistant crime analyst, they actually created that position. And then from, I actually applied for when one of the analyst positions became vacant, I'm already an assistant by then, and I applied for it and didn't get it. And I was, oh, I was devastated. (laughs) And And I thought to myself, all right, obviously there's something that I need to get out of this. And I wasn't sure what it was. And I knew the direction that the department was going and the unit was going. And by then we had been, we were not grant funded anymore. After digging deep down, I was like, okay, the new person coming in, I'm going to learn everything I can from that new person because I knew that they were eventually going to be adding on additional analysts and I wanted to be one of them. And so that's what I did. Just, you know, continue to learn, ask for training. And they came around, they decided they were going to hire four precinct analysts. I applied and I got that. And so I went to second precinct, which is you know a patrol operation, and so I did analysis in a, at a precinct level. I also worked in major crimes for violent crime. I've done a little bit of everything. I've moved around a lot too, so it's it's been kind of interesting. In 2021, I believe it was no, not 2021, 20, 2001. I get my numbers mixed up. 2001, 
I actually was pulled out of the crime analysis unit and put down in media relations. And I worked in media relations for five years. And that was devastating. That, that one, because my love was analysis. I love doing analysis. You know, I loved Steve Gottlieb's class, you know, when they, you know, they taught you how to do your predictions and your forecasting and all the mapping and everything. I mean, we were, we used to write those, we call them the 68% reports and <laughs> our street crimes unit, you know, they would come over begging for them. And next thing I know, I'm being pulled out and put down in media relations. And, and it was, it was hard and I had a hard time adjusting, but with a good supervisor, she was, she knew I was struggling and cause I was put somewhere where I did not want to be. But I also have a, a train of thought that, okay, obviously I'm meant to be here for a reason. I got to suck it up and figure out what it is <laughs> yeah. and move on. So, and I think the reason I was put there was twofold. One, it helped me to exercise the other side of my brain. You know, I have been using my analytical side of my brain. Now in media, I got to be creative and more so creative than I was, you know, was ever when I was doing my analytical work. And so, you know, designs, writing press releases, writing articles, working with the media, going to the TV channels, doing press conferences. I really became the 411 for the department. I know any and everything that you can ever really think of when it comes to a police department because I was the number that you called to ask questions. And I was the one who had to get the answers. And I mean, I remember one time I had a, a caller wanted to know if they could dump their ashes at one of the monuments so in Richmond. Back in the day, we had Monument Avenue and she wanted to dump her ashes at one of those monuments. And I had to research it and come find out you can't, that's illegal. <laughs> It's so, one you know, of those things to ask uh, forgiveness, not permission, right? I know, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> so, yeah, I had to call her and tell her, say, no, you can't really do that. But while I was in media, I picked up a camera, found my love for photography, and did a lot of different, you know, shooting of pictures and different things like that for our newsletter and designing brochures and invitations and things. And I was also the analyst for the chief's office. So I worked on special projects for the chief's office. So in, in a roundabout way, it, I think it brought me full circle. Of course, I didn't realize it at the time. <laughs> yeah, and I, I applaud your attitude and effort for this endeavor because at 46 years old, I still struggle with this concept of if things aren't going my way, if I'm going the one way I planned, isn't necessarily going the way I wanted to. And I'm now in this other situation. Like I really sometimes have to check my ego mm -hmm. to not have bad attitude, bad effort because yeah. of I'm not in where I want to be. So it, it's kudos to you for figuring it all out. Well, a lot of times it is taking that step back and, you know, doing a little bit of, of evaluation to see what what you can get out of where you're at. And I've, I've found through the years that a lot of times for me, because I'm a constant, constantly learning, applying different things, you know, I, I'm like a sponge. I want to soak up as much information as I can and, and I want to share it with people. I, I want, you know, it's like, look what I learned. Let me show you this. <laughs> you need to know how to do this. I'll come help you. Let's get this going, you know. And that's kind of how I, I look at things. And a, a couple of years ago, I 
I actually felt, at first I thought I was burnt out. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, no, I still have my love for analysis, but I couldn't figure out why I was just kind of down as far as work was concerned. And I realized, and this was after I had become a supervisor, because I applied after doing five years in media relations, the supervisor position, which was civilian, came up for the crime analysis unit and I applied for it. When I applied for that position, I went in ready and showed them how I wanted to find the unit, things that I wanted to implement, things that I thought we could be doing, things that we should be doing, things that we aren't doing now. And to top it off, and I, you know, I, I share this not to, not to say that you shouldn't go to school, that's not what I'm saying. I don't have a degree. I probably don't even have 21 credits to my name. And I've managed to work my way through the, the law enforcement field to become the supervisor of the crime analysis unit. And, you know, I had to do my part, but luckily I had, you know, supervisors who saw that and gave me the resources that I need to move forward. And I was even interviewed three times for the supervisor position in the crime analysis unit. Three interviews. And I remember on my last interview, they asked me the same questions that they asked me in the previous two. And because they were trying to figure out, they basically asked me, are you going to be able to handle the diverse personalities in the unit? And how many times can I say yes to this, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember telling them that, well, I've, you know, you've asked me this before and you, and they really, you know, they tell you, you shouldn't talk about personal stuff when you're doing your interviews. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm thinking, okay, this is my third inter my third interview with you. And finally I said, you know, I've answered this. And I will tell you, if I, I at the time I was going through a separation and a divorce, and I, I looked at the deputy chief and I said to her, if I can handle this, going through separation and a divorce, I can handle that. <laughs> I mean, what, because I'd said everything that, could have been said. Yeah. And next thing I know, there I was. I'm, <laughs> I'm in the crime analysis unit as the supervisor. But, you know, you, you set down everything that I had put down on paper that I wanted to accomplish about five years before it was time for me to retire. That, that lull that I hit, I realized was as I started to approach it, it was because I basically had accomplished everything that I wanted to accomplish as far as that role was concerned. And I had to refocus myself to figure out what was my next step. And my next step was knowing that the team was, you know, a well-oiled machine. I didn't have to be there. God forbid if I got hit by a bus, they would survive, they would be great. But I realized that, you know, the next step is to prepare those individuals in the unit to, if they chose to interview, that they would be ready. And then that's kind of when my leadership development, my interest in furthering leadership development and developing the team and those people that I worked with came to be. So you mentioned in the very beginning, you didn't even know you were applying for the job that you got in terms of the clerk typist. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, did you ever find out maybe behind the scenes how that all came about that somebody saw something and said, Hey, this person yeah. would be good for this role. Like who was <laughs> that? And, and how did that come to be? 
So yes, I did find out the story behind that. And so at the time there was a sergeant who was overseeing that grant funded crime analysis unit. And they actually had a clerk typist there, showed up for a couple days and then disappeared, never returned. Mm -hmm. And so he went down to HR and basically told them, I'd like to see all the applicants you have for, for clerk typist. I didn't apply for a job with the police department, but what I believe happened was because I applied for a, a different type of clerk typist position within the city, my information got filtered over to the police department. Mm. And he went through, I don't know, he, you know, a, a stack full of applications and resumes. And the story is he saw mine, he read through it and he handed it to HR and said, I want this one. And that was it. Next thing I know, I'm getting called by HR from the background investigator for the police department for me to come in, you know, fill out your packet. They mailed me my packet. I filled out my packet. I went in for my background interview, everything that you do. And then next thing I know, I am sitting in the crime analysis unit as the clerk typist and never interviewed. Oh, wow. I know, right? <laughs> that is serendipitous. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and so it, I think it's interesting that there's a clerk typist inside the crime analysis unit. So well, you got to remember, this was back in 1992 mm -hmm. <laughs> where you didn't have all the computer processes that you have now. Yeah. So we did a lot of typing and a lot of data entry, a lot of here, this is really going to date me. A lot of stuff at a dot prompt. <laughs> are you doing all records or are you targeting certain records that the crime analysis unit wants to analyze? So it was more or less, I was the support for the sergeant and the two analysts. And if that meant doing data entry into a database, filtering through reports because we, you know, at the time we were getting hard copy reports of everything, sorting through it. It was, it was truly a clerk typist position, but what happened was because of my interest in what they were doing and they would teach me as we went along and the unit was growing. I mean, this was back in 1992 when they were, you know, crime analysis was really developing and you know, that interest that I had and they were willing to show me. So I just, you know, kind of went along and if something popped up, my my motto is it doesn't hurt to ask. Mm -hmm. All they can do is tell you no. Yeah. And you know, you might tell me no today, but that doesn't mean I might not ask you again, you know, three months from now. <laughs> so, because yeah. I, you know, if it's something that I feel that can benefit myself, the unit, the department, I'm going to, I'm going to keep asking and keep, you know, trying to get whatever it is that we need. And for me, that was, I just wanted to know more. Yeah. So, so then as you mentioned too, that a position comes up, you apply for it, but you come up short. Who was this analyst? Is this somebody that came from the outside? Yeah. Yes. She came from the outside. Yeah. Okay. What was, what was her name? Unica. Okay. She actually works. I think she works for state police now. I think that's where okay. she's at. Okay. Again, this is, I think, lots of maturity on your part to recognize that, okay, I, I know what I want. I came up short. I need to learn how to get where I want to go. I always think of, you know, the concept of qualify and apply. 
type right. type thing. Yeah. What do you think you learn from Unique as she's coming in and you're trying to put yourself in the position for that next round of hiring? You know, it was it was a, a whole bunch of things because the analyst who was there, because there was two analysts previous, one was still there. And I must say, Trot, he's retired now. He was the one of the original analysts who came in when I came in as a Kirk typist. And he was a mathematician and he was actually a prisoner of war. He was a he was from Vietnam and he was a math teacher. And I learned a lot from him. And Unica, I think it two different, totally different personalities. And I learned how to communicate a little bit better. I learned how to write out what you know, what we were doing, how to lay things out. And the biggest thing is I remember too was working with, I can't remember exactly the scenario, but we were working with some statistics and it was, it was something about percentages, percent to percent. And she made a comment and it was kind of like, oh, okay, I get it now. And so it was, you know, it was just take, taking it all in every little aspect that you can. Yeah. That's that's something I get frustrated with too. There's been scenarios where I I think I'm explaining a concept as clear as can be, and (laughs) and I'm I'm doing my best to explain to the person, and then somebody else in the room says what I think is like three words that are different from what I said, and somehow the person gets what what it at based on what that other person said and i'm like am i speaking another language here like this yeah <laughs> like, that's pretty much what i've been saying for 20 minutes right and right. that can be frustrating and and that's the one thing one thing that i learned from her and you know and the thing is you know truck being from vietnam you know his some of his terminologies you know we we had to help him as well and we you building that rapport with one another and being able to work together as a team I, I can see how that helped me grow to take on the next the next phase that I was coming into. Did you guys produce a lot of mathematical equations in the products that you were producing? So what we were doing was, you know, now we have Excel mm-hmm. does all the mathematic formulas and stuff like that. Like I said, this was back, you know, we had Excel, but it wasn't until later, you know, that some you know applications were added to what we were using but i remember using a texas instrument calculator (laughs) i mean i'm talking old school and you know where you pull out you're looking at a crime series and you're you're doing your mathematical stuff on a calculator and you're writing it down on paper and you're you know you're doing this and you're doing that it's gotten easier through the years obviously but yeah so it was it was we were doing whether it was forecasting for crime series or just doing the normal this is where we were last year and this is the percent change you know or you know this is where we were five years ago compared to where we are now you know things like that it was we were doing all kinds of stuff we did a lot of we did a lot of administrative obviously and the tactical you know, our main focus was tactical, but it's always seemed that, you know, the, the fifth floor, we call it the fifth floor, the chief suite, yeah. you know, wanted more of the nice to know stuff. And so we, we tried to balance out, you know, doing the tactical with the administrative stuff that was needed. Yeah, it's almost depending on what question you're trying to answer, right? Right, 
<laughs> well, you know, it's funny. You've said something about me um, knowing kind of like the path I wanted to go, that I wanted to continue to learn. And I heard a quote the other day, and I can't remember who said it. Oh, I know who it was. It was John Maxwell. John Max, because I was listening to a podcast the other day, he was talking about dreaming, you know, dreaming your dream and following your dream. And my dream was to become an analyst. And at the time I was an assistant analyst. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he makes the, he says something to the fact of a realist knows where they want to go. Someone who has a dream has already been there. Mm, so, I, right. So when I think of that, it's like, I know where I want to go because I've been there. I want to be that analyst. And that's the direction I was going. Yeah. It is fascinating to think about because I, I, in almost everything that I've done or in trying to help other people, it's if you know where you want to go, to me, that's over half the battle. Exactly. Right? Like yes. if you know, if you know you want to go to Paris, France someday, then okay, there's steps along the way that you could build towards to get you there. But if you have no idea where to go, you just know you want to go, that that can be a little bit more hard to satisfy that that desire or that thirst, whatever you're trying to do. So I do think the fact that you knew this is what you wanted to do, you could set aim for it and mm -hmm. then center all your energy towards that endeavor made you focused on what you needed to do oh yeah most definitely most definitely yeah. all right so you, you work your way up you get that analyst role you get assigned to a patrol and then you know i guess kind of take us back take us to through that first day right this is something that you've been working for a long time and you had maybe a couple of setbacks but then all right Today's the day you're walking in as an analyst for the very first time. Yeah, so it was it was interesting because we went from being centralized to the analysts. When they hired precinct analysts, we were decentralized. So we had um, an analyst in each precinct and we were not supervised by the crime analysis unit. So walking into a precinct to support a precinct and it's one of those things where I had to walk in knowing what I knew from working in the crime analysis unit to be able to apply that at a precinct level and to provide the support needed for both, you know, the, the officers on the street for deployment of their resources to assisting with the detectives and helping the captains and the lieutenants with meetings and things that they were going to. So it was, it was where I wanted to be and I was glad to be there. And, you know, I, I did several. One of one of my successes came out of working in Second Precinct, and you know I grew up in the city, and so I knew the layout of the land. So it was like, and going to Second Precinct was like going home because I lived on that side of town. So it was it was really good. It was exciting. Yeah, and I said patrol there. <laughs> I meant precinct. I I got a boy in Boy Scouts, so I think I got patrol on the brain. But no, it was patrol. <laughs> yeah, it was patrol operations. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But all right. And then so as you mentioned, 2001 time frame, you're transferred from the analysis unit into media relations after you spent that whole time learning and focusing mm -hmm. to get to the goal of being an analyst you get transferred into media relations but as you mentioned it was 
at the time it may seem like a step backwards, but there was a lot of things that you took out of that experience that helped you along the way. Yes, very much so. It, you know, it, that was a, that was a struggle for the first couple of months. And I, you know, I, once again, I had a, another very good supervisor who <laughs> brought me into her office and sat me down and, and she was right. She says, either you're going to make the most of it and, you know, you're going to learn. And she goes, you're going to have fun in here. And I, I remember her telling me that she's like, you know, this is a great group to work with. You're going to enjoy it. And you know what? She was right. And it, a lot of it is taking a step back, swallowing my pride a little bit and saying, okay, how can I make the most of this? And you know, what, what can I learn from this? Because I would, I felt like I was, I was pulled out of what I was meant to be doing and put down in media relations, never worked in media, you know, never did anything with media before. And then it was like, all right, obviously I'm here for a reason. Yeah. And I just got to, you know, keep moving forward and figure out what it was. Yeah. And so, you know, I I will say that is probably that group, that media relations group, even when I left media relations to go back to the crime analysis unit, I still to this day maintain contact outside of work with that group. And to me, that speaks volumes about the friendships that I built there, what I learned, what they taught me, got to use the other side of my brain, got to be creative, and still did a little bit of analysis, not as much as I wanted to do, but I got to do other things. And that was that was the benefit. And it took me a while to see that. It really did. Yeah. Well, I often talk about on this show how I feel it's difficult once you're at a larger agency to really be able to take the temperature of crime for that police department. You just don't have the time or the energy to read all the cases. It's There's just too much there. Yeah. And, and another thing that I want to talk about too is what people did prior to getting into that analyst role. You know, data entry is, is obviously a good one because you learn a lot from doing data entry and that helps you later down in the road down the road as an analyst. And one of the things that you bring into the table that I don't think I've covered on this show yet is this idea of being in media relations and all the information that you would have learned in that five years that helped you be a better analyst when you went back to being an analyst later. And because mm -hmm. certainly, obviously from the police department's perspective, like anything that the police department is making public and a public address is going through you. But also, as you mentioned already, that you got people calling you for all sorts of questions. Right. And you can actually get a little bit of sense of what is bothering the citizens of that department. Yes, it was definitely a different side, a, a, a different point of view, because we did work a lot more in media, obviously, with the media and with the public. And so it was a different point of view. And you know what? It was also one of the th those things, too, where I was able to come down to that unit because of what I knew. I knew how to extract data. I knew how to get information out. And the people in the unit didn't know how to do that. And so when it came to answering questions, it took a little bit longer for them to answer them before I was there. Now that I'm in there, 
it was flowing a lot faster. We were able to process things a lot better. I was able to explain things to media, you know, things that we take for granted as an analyst, like, you know, what is a violent crime versus a property crime? You know, we kind of, I, I, I'll admit, there's been times where I sit there and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. They don't know what a violent crime is, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. But they haven't had to look at it the way I had to look at it or as an analyst, how we look at it. And so being down there, it was very eye-opening and it definitely helped, you know, helped me grow in a totally different direction. And my supervisor there, she, she handled things differently from a supervisory point of view, which in turn, when I went back to the crime analysis unit, helped us track our workload much better. And we were able to address things and support the department more efficiently, I believe. Hi, this is Dawn Reby, 22 plus years in law enforcement analytics and CEO of Excellence in Analytics. And here's our public service announcement of the day. Hire a qualified coach. The process of growth and development is not easy. And quite honestly, many professionals in service-based industries have their wheels spinning for years. It just doesn't work. It doesn't get better. You can only see through your lenses. Hiring a coach is the best thing that I did years ago, and I still have one today. I love the clients we coach. They get results, and those results are real. They build confidence. They create better work-life harmony. They excel in their careers, and they simply have more joy. It is possible. Get yourself there faster by hiring a qualified coach. Hey there, this is Jessica Ellsmore, and this is your friendly daily reminder to remember why you started. Keep your passion, stay involved, and just remember what got you interested in crime analysis. This brings us to your analyst badge story. And for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works. And for you, this deals with a bandit bank robber. Yes, it does. Very much so. <laughs> he, he was actually named the granddad bandit. So he robbed a SunTrust bank in downtown Richmond. And then he also hit in one of our surrounding jurisdictions in Henrico. And in the end, he pled guilty to, in the Richmond area, four bank robberies. What is interesting is he was from Louisiana. And it was a partnership that was between myself, Joyce Salmon, in Henrico. She was the analyst in Henrico County and the FBI. When we noticed that we were having similar robberies and that the suspect all appeared to be the same, and then once we got all the photos and started putting photos together, we knew then that it was the same person. He, he really did look like your grandfather. It was a older white man, 50 to 60 years old. He, he was kind of balding. One of his things was he always wore a watch. He always clean cut, you know, came in wearing, you know, like a, a button up shirt and different things like that. You could tell it was him. Mm -hmm. What became interesting was, is that, so when we have cases, at least for us here in the Metro Richmond area, we will tag team and work cases together with the analysts in the other jurisdictions. And so that means that we will partner together and build the special report that's going to go out. We share the responsibility. So it could be like a, maybe I did the mapping 
and you know Joyce did some of the research and then you know I pulled pictures she pulled pictures and we would merge it all together in one report and then we would send it out both internally to our agencies and then we would share it you know with the agencies and the FBI and some of our federal partners as well it was then that in Joyce's research because she started or she's while I was putting together, because a lot of times I did all the mapping, she would she would go out and research online to see if there were anything else that might fit. And this was this was back in like 2000. I think it started in 2008, and he was prosecuted in 2011. And so she went out online and started looking for other to see if there were other bank robberies, and there were. And basically, he went up and down pretty much the East Coast, and even out west some and committed these robberies. If you Google him, you can, it's called, you can Google the granddad bandit. You can Google Michael Mara. He was suspected in 25 bank robberies in 13 states. Wow. Yes, I know, right? And it started, that we are aware of, started in December 2008 with the holdup of our bank in the city of Richmond, which was downtown. So yeah, that was, that was a pretty interesting case, you know, to be able to, to have this partnership with you know, not just your agency, but the FBI and, you know, your, your other jurisdiction that borders you. We actually received, Joyce and I received from the governor's office, a public service award for this case, for bringing it to closure with the FBI. And so that was, you know, that was kind of neat to get recognized at that level. Yeah, it was, it was, I still got the plaque. Even though I'm retired now, it's here at home. <laughs> there's, a, there's accolades should still hold weight, so to speak. It does. It does. Once I get everything situated, I will put it up in my office. But yeah, let me see. I can tell you, he actually pled guilty. Let's see if I can find out how many he pled guilty to. I'm trying to remember. I have it written down. Okay. Yeah. So he pled guilty to 26 bank robberies in 15 states Man. and that's was that a federal case yes it did go federal yeah so that's what surprises me about this whole thing because and maybe it's changed over the years but i thought the fbi handled most bank robberies and yeah, and i'm did. surprised that you had this robber go into 13 different states and not be able to link them all together <laughs> Yeah, but you know, it ultimately, you know, it's it started kind of, you know, in the Virginia and the Metro Richmond area. And I think with us, the fact that, you know, we were working together, two separate agencies who started noticing these similarities. And you figure, I think, if I recall, I want to say there were like four cases in, in the Metro Richmond area. And, you know, when you have the four, and then like, you know, Joyce going out and doing her research and saying, wait a minute there looks to be more and to matching up those pictures and then, you know, reaching out to the FBI, the FBI reaching out to us, it truly, it became a partnership. And, mm. you know, and it's one of those things where they allowed us to continue to track it, you know, to keep up with the information that was coming in and, and plotting all that, which was actually kind of nice, you know, because ultimately I guess the FBI could have come in and just took it all over, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's nice that they're playing ball with y'all. So it is, isn't it? <laughs> but I, so, how often was he robbing banks? Was there a 
great time span between all of these robberies? So there was. So he started in like 2008 and he wasn't arrested until like the end of 2010, I believe it was, because he was prosecuted in 2011. So yeah, it went for several years and th- there was times in between. And, you know, he was just going all over the place. And the funny thing is his wife didn't know. He was mm-hmm. married and his wife, you know, his wife didn't know. So that was, he Did would he go- travel for work. Yeah. He would go on business trips. Yep. He would travel. He would tell his wife that he was going on trips and uh, yeah, and he would rob banks. Hmm. Now, do you know his prep in meaning that did he stake out these banks beforehand or did he only target certain banks? No, I don't. To be honest, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. It's been, it's been so long. I just, you know, I kind of just really recall the ba- the basics. I don't recall all that. Yeah. But I guess if you're for work, if he's traveling to the same areas all the time regularly, yeah, he, he could, he would have he to could have some type of yeah, he could spend one trip doing the prep and then the other trip robbing the bank. Yeah, it's just. I mean, just... <laughs> obviously, obviously, he had you know the fact that he he stuck to his look. He didn't do very much to disguise himself. Well, that's which... what I'm. That's what I can't get over. Like he yeah. should have been recorded, photographed I know, in right? every single bank robbery. It I should know. have got to maybe <laughs> four before somebody realized that there was a problem. And right. here it got up to 26. 26 across, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. My my wife's got into all these crime documentaries and she just finds them fascinating and Every single one of them that she tells me about has some kind of enabler, meaning that the only reason they were able to do it for so long was that somebody basically wasn't doing their job. Mm, yeah, yeah, right. I that could be the could be the case, very right? Much so. and, and I mean, in this case, you are talking about two thousand eight, two thousand ten, but still, it's not like it's not like that was the dark ages. No, <laughs> it wasn't. Now, maybe the quality of the photos could have been bad because we did go. We still had to deal with that very grainy surveillance yeah. videos that yeah. and pictures that we have to deal with. But still, a general description of this guy—the fact that he didn't really. cover up or do anything he just walked into the bank that you should have been able to get a pretty good description of who you were dealing with yeah it's amazing because matter of fact right before you came on I just out of curiosity I wondered if I could still find it and I did I googled him and it's there you can see the pictures online it's it's amazing you know to be able to to see him and just you would you know, you know how sometimes you, you look at, I hate to say this, kind of can get, you know, people go, oh, that, that, he looks like a criminal. <laughs> Not that there's <laughs> a specific look to a criminal. But when you look at this guy, you don't think bank robber. Yeah. You don't think yeah. bank robber. You know, it's because when I think bank robber, you think of what you see, well, basically yeah. what you see in the movies. You know, they're coming in masked up. They have, you know, they have a weapon. Unless, you know, they're using a note and passing a note or something yeah. like that. Usually they're masked up and stuff. Yeah. And no, he comes well, no. clear as day. Yeah, well, that reminds me of what is that, the BKT killer? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, he basically got away with it for so long because, again, people didn't see him as a threat. Right, exactly. So, yeah. yeah, I can certainly understand that. With this bank robber, though, how much money was he getting approximately? Yeah, I don't remember that either. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's whatever the tellers 
you know, at the time what the tellers kept in their, in their box, mm -hmm. you know, in their boxes. Yeah, man. That shouldn't be a lucrative venture, Robin Banks, but I mean, he did get away with it up to 26. And who yeah. knows, that's just the ones he was charged with. And maybe right. he did other ones that they didn't even get him for. I don't know. I always, I always wondered when I arrested somebody, not arrested, I, not I personally, but when I worked on a case where I knew somebody was dealing with a lot of money, had accumulated a lot of money in their criminal activity. It makes me wonder. I was like, I wonder if, if they have like this stash. Like they yeah, knew they <laughs> knew that like this is only gonna go so long and then I'm gonna get busted and go to prison for a period of time, but I'm gonna have this stash when I'm done. I don't know. I don't know if they think that long term ahead, but it makes me wonder what I'm seeing, you know, especially some of these drug dealing cases that oh I know uh, right part of when they're <laughs> talking about millions and millions of dollars and money everywhere is how much do they have like buried buried in the backyard buried, right? Right? <laughs> so but uh so no and then you said you did the mapping portion yes. of that were you able to get any kind of profile geographic profile going on or be able to guess maybe where he was going to hit next for, i mean well, prior to you that, catching him yeah from what i can remember we, you know, once the FBI came in and we started linking all the other, you know, jurisdictions uh, across the country together and with the photos and everything, tips started coming in mm -hmm. and they actually got a tip in that the person thought it was this person. And when they followed up on the tip and everything, that's when they found out that it was, it was a good tip. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the investigator from the FBI, you know, did their part in bringing that together and, Okay, so that's how he was eventually yes. caught as some uh, tip identified yes. him, and then they went, okay, yeah, deal. Yeah, so, is there anything lessons learned or anything in terms of your analytical work? Maybe things you might have wish you'd done differently as you worked on this case? Not per se, I think for as for an analyst, we just always got to think beyond the borders. We always say crime knows no boundaries, so it's it's one of those things where. It might not just be the boundary of your jurisdiction. It might not just be the boundary of the surrounding jurisdictions or the state line or state states lines. It's 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 amazing how you know people are transient. People get around, and you know when I started in the department back in the early '90s, you know we used to joke about crime never crossed the river. <laughs> And, you know, if you lived on, if you lived north of the river, you never came south of the river. Mm. Well, that's not true anymore. It's yeah. changed. And, and we've, I've seen that. I've seen it happen. And this is just a good example of how, you know, people are, people are moving and people are going. So it doesn't hurt to, you know, you know, when Joyce did her research, when she Googled, you know, bank robberies and all these pictures and these, you know, newscasts and everything started coming up. You know, she's getting that from all over the place. And so, yeah, it's just remember, it's not always just about your jurisdiction. It could be bigger than than where you are. And so you should all, always search. It never hurts to search past that. Hmm. All right. So, you know, now let's kind of move, move on from that. You mentioned interviewing for the supervisory role three times. And just for my clarification in my head, is that three interviews for the same hiring process or was that three different interviews that they didn't hire you the first time they hired somebody else and that was the three, no. three there no that was for the same process 
So you go in, your initial interview is a panel. So I did my panel interview. I'm assuming I was the one that they said, oh yeah, she would be the one. She's the one we want. And then when it went from the pan, the panel people to the chief's office to make the final call and everything, the chief's office is the one who interviewed me three times. What do you think the hangup was? I didn't have a degree. Wow. I didn't have a degree and they just, you know, the, you know, the, the main thing was that they kept stressing was personalities, personalities, but I don't know. I, I've always made it a goal to, I'm a people watcher and I like, you know, I like to figure people out. So that has never been an issue for me, you know, trying to figure out how to work with people and whatnot. So I don't know. Yeah. I find it funny because you certainly can get a college degree and not talk to people at all. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, mean, that was the only thing that I can figure. I don't think the only thing, if you were to look at my credentials, the only thing that was missing was that I didn't have a college degree. And I'm trying to think, did we have certification then? And I will say I'm not certified. I'm not certified through the IACA or through Gottlieb's group or anything like that. But the thing is, is, I mean, even to the, you know, up until I retired, even someone with a degree coming in, I'm the person who trains them. And, you know, it's, it's funny when I think of that. <laughs> yeah, but, I don't know. And that always comes up. You mentioned certification is somebody that doesn't have a degree versus somebody that does. And in that certification process, you know, you have to score so many points in order to be able to take the test to get certified. And I know right. there's been some talk over the years that says, okay, you're given 20 points for a degree and Mm -hmm. I need to score a hundred or whatever the ratio is. And, but I have, I've been doing this job for 15 years and I'm not up to par to scoring a hundred points. So it, it does get a little frustrating to folks that I, (laughs) that are in your shoes that, yeah, I don't have a degree, but I'm also doing this job and I've been doing it for over a decade. Yeah. 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 Yes. I mean, it's, it's tough, but you know what? I made it through. <laughs> yeah. It, it will be interesting moving forward, how that translates, because I do think we're, we're in our society is in for, I think a mass movement in terms of, I think college degrees. I just think that with the way, you know, school debt and college debt and, yeah. and all this stuff, I, I do think there's going to be this shift away from at least in part to the four-year degree. Right, right. So, but anyway, all right. Well, you also mentioned taking your goal-driven approach to the position and yeah. that there were so many things that you eventually got to the end of your list of what you want to accomplish. So what were some of those things that you were able to accomplish as a supervisor? Well, we went from being a centralized unit because they basically they centralized everybody while I was down in media. So when I came back up there, one, I wanted everybody to, even though they had their specialties, I wanted everyone in the unit to be cross-trained. So that was one of the biggest tasks that I took on was to make sure that we could cover for each other so that if someone went out or on vacation or sick or whatever, you know, it might take me a little bit longer to do it, but I could do it, you know, along with our, you know, the person who was the expert in that. And then we wanted, we were supporting 
precincts, which is, you know, our field operations plus major crimes, which is our homicide, aggravated assaults, and then our investigative, our gang and narcotics section. And it was one of those things where I, you know, I've always encouraged interaction, going on ride-alongs, working out in the field with, with them, going out, if you have a crime series, going out and surveying the land, so to speak, and to getting to know your areas and things like that. Um, and then I decided, well, you know what, we're going to work a rotating shift of two days in the office being centralized and then two days in the field. And we rotated that between the people that were there. And so that we always had coverage because we were always told we always had to have coverage at headquarters. I also have found through my tenure that sometimes it's better not to ask for approval. (laughs) Just do it. Because sometimes when you take an idea, they don't always see your vision. And it was one of those things where initially meeting with the supervisor, I laid out, you know, my plan, my game plan. This is where I see us going. This is what we're going to do. And I was told no. And then, you know, I'm like, okay. So I waited a couple months and then I reapproached it. And then I, then we just started doing it. And it wasn't to go against the grain. It was one of those things where I sat down with the team and I said, I really think we can document this and prove to upper management that this can be beneficial and that we can maintain what headquarters needs us to maintain while two of us at a time are out in the field for, you know, two days a week. And we did it. We did it. We we did it. We documented it. We were, you know, we came back, presented it, saying this is what we've been testing. I did not get in trouble, thank goodness. But actually that led to us to pre-COVID. We've always, up until COVID, we've always been able to work remotely. They didn't like us working remotely. But what we had moved up to was the team worked four days in the field and one day at headquarters. Mm-hmm. So there'd be four analysts out in their precincts and then there would be two analysts at headquarters and then myself at headquarters and one day a week we always met back at headquarters that's when we had our team meetings if we needed to discuss anything to work on anything we would do that for me it was being able to give the analysts trusting them to give them the ability to make decisions and to to know what is best for them and it worked some of them sat with detect in the in the detective areas in their precincts Well, when you're in an open area that's cubicles and you need quiet to work on something, they knew that they could come to headquarters and work in their office at headquarters. And they took advantage of those things. And it was as long as we kept the communication lines open of letting, you know, letting each other know where we are, it, it worked. That was another big thing that we did. And then, you know, the next big thing was having a supervisor who did not like teleworking and basically told us we couldn't do it. And, you know, it's one of those things, it's a double-edged sword because it's like, you don't want us to do it unless you need something from us after hours. And then it's okay Uh, for us to telework. And, you know, and I would argue that. But then COVID came and I remember telling the team, I said, we are going to maximize this. We are going to use this as an example to show, because we weren't essential. In the beginning, we were not essential employees and they made us essential. And, you know, they and then, of course, being in COVID and then we went through civil unrest. So now we're having to prove we can go through COVID. We can telecommute. Several of us can come in when you need us to come in to work, whatever. We did have to pull several analysts to work civil unrest. 
but we maintained and we we maintained workload and connections and you know that was that was another big su- success for us was to show them how far we could we could come and during that time we implemented new software we stood up a, a GIS enterprise. We switched over to Arc Pro. We learned a new CAD system, how to extract data out of CAD using Power BI. You know, we we implemented a whole lot of new software during that time of COVID in training and everything and still maintained our work. Yeah. Right. Good. Good, good deal. I want to switch gears a little bit now and what I wanted to talk about in just in general is leadership. It's a pretty broad topic, but I do want to just get some highlights from you and their message that you want to send to our audience. Yeah. So I'm a big component of obviously leadership and really it's to focus inward for those who aren't certain that they are leaders is for them to know that there is such a thing as leadership of self. And in order to lead, you have to be able to take care of yourself and build yourself. In law enforcement, we are in what we call, it's a service, we provide a service. And when you think of leadership, as you build yourself, you begin to learn and take in the things about, you know, how to accomplish your goals or, you know, how to time management. I mean, things that you would think, well, that's leadership. Those are things that help move you through And what becomes the leadership part is when you start sharing that with other people and then you think about working as a team, when you can work with a team and build those relationships, because as an analyst, especially an analyst that's civilian, it's all about rapport. It's all about relationships and building that trust, which goes back to leadership and that that development of yourself to be able to reach out to those individuals. So that, you know, and the thing is, It amazed me when I started teaching leadership development at work, the first question I ask in our very first class is, who here is a leader? And the hands that did not go up, oh my (laughs) goodness, I couldn't believe it. There were people there who did not look at themselves as leaders and it, it baffled me. And that's one of my biggest goals is to help them realize that they are leaders and how to identify that they are and that it's okay. You know, people think, oh, you're being selfish if you're focusing on yourself. Well, you know, you if you can't help yourself, you can't help others. And so, you know, that's that's the first step in moving forward. It's almost like it's the foundation. It's your building blocks. Yeah. Well, there's this idea, too, as a leader that you should practice what you preach. Right. So you should you should be just there coaching. You should be doing what you expect of the people that you're leading. So there's a there's a lot to that. It reminds me of my son's Brazilian Jiu Jitsu instructor Mm -hmm. told them that you're a leader no matter whether you know it or not or whether you like it or not. Because (laughs) other students will see what you do and Mm -hmm. they will mimic what you do. Exactly. So if you're going to be, if I allow you to sit there and be a goofball, then other people are going to be a goofball too type thing. Exactly. Exactly. It just, it just baffles me that people just don't have that mind, you know, that mindset and getting them. And, you know, it's one of those things as we go through some of the courses in leadership development, it's good to see them change their mindsets of things that they can do to help better, help move them on 
and how that they can take what they've learned and share it with others and that they are leaders. You don't have to have a title or a position to be a leader. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what their definition of a leader is. Right? Yeah, that's like, true too. Right, because I think a lot of people might be thinking in that role when you ask that question is like, well, yeah, I'm not a manager. I'm not leading a team to do X. And so I think in that regard, their answer would be no. And that's why I think that probably they're thinking the way they are, just a guess. Right, right. And yeah. you're right. That That probably is why. But that's why it's important for me to change that mindset is that you don't have to have a position or a title to be a leader, especially in the field that we're in, because it is truly servant leadership in everything we do when, you know, whether it's helping your neighbor, showing someone how to do a formula in Excel, you know, picking up a box and carrying it into the other room for somebody that's leadership. So this could probably gets more into management than leadership, but I, mm-hmm. I, if you have people that are hungry and want to go out and be tenacious, it's it can be a little easier to direct them and help them and nurture them as opposed to somebody that just is sitting back and just basically showing up, for lack of better term there. And when you get to somebody that maybe has no idea where they want to go or what they want to do or is just really confused, that can be really difficult as a leader to nurture them and to guide them in a in a direction. Yes, and, and that is true. I had an analyst who I just had a hard time finding the connection. I finally, I had to realize that I couldn't do it. I had to find other resources to help her. And I thought that I was failing her. It wasn't until, and here's a little plug for Don Reby. It wasn't Not that until, she needs it right now. No, no, but <laughs> I will say that was one of the things that I realized was that some of the training that she offered, this analyst wanted to do it. And so I was like, all right, this is great. This is great. And she went through the courses and she flourished. She did great. She needed that. And so, and you know, it's being able to recognize that sometimes you might not be able to do it yourself. You have to bring in other resources to help you. That was it. And then also, even with the the same analyst, it was like a couple of months before I'm retiring, did her and I finally connect. We actually made a connection. And that's when I found out that she had the same interest that I did. And once that connection hit, it was like, wow, you know, it, 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 it changed the atmosphere. I couldn't even begin to explain how, how I felt it changed the connection that her and I had. You know, I've worked with a great bunch of analysts and yeah, yeah they're just, I've, I've had a good group. I've enjoyed working with every one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I do think as we are going to this age of working remotely and not being face to face, that it is important to just ask questions and talk about stuff that maybe not necessarily work related right? Exactly. to help with that connection. Because I think there's bonds that will be established by more than just a task that you both have in common. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Good. All right. As you look back, you were with the department for 30 years and had training, had opportunities to 
work with analysts both in your department and outside of your department as you look on the outside is there a unit person company whatever it is that you wished given a different circumstance that you would have an opportunity to work with no i actually had an opportunity to apply for a job at one of the surrounding jurisdictions and i chose not to yeah i i enjoyed working with the Richmond Police Department. And that was my home. It's still my home. And uh, even though I'm retired, <laughs> yeah, it's like I told them at my retirement party, they haven't gotten rid of me. You know, I, I will be going back to visit and helping on different projects and things like that. So mm. yeah, couldn't see myself anywhere else. That's good. And that brings me to another topic that I talk to about from time to time on this show, which is analysts leaving the public sector for the private sector, right? It seems like weekly on LinkedIn that I'm seeing uh, another analyst that was in the public sector move into the private sector. And mm -hmm. I'm not bashing that by any stretch of the imagination. But what I feel, though, is in a way, the law enforcement analysis profession really needs folks to stay in the public sector work their way up and eventually make their way to executive staff or police chiefs and yeah. i do, and i've preached this a lot on this show mm -hmm. that i think that is the path to really getting big step changes with the profession is to have that path from analyst to executive board member and that is and, the, that is the one thing that is at least from what I have seen is missing. There is no room for growth per se. Now I, I did grow, but there really isn't any other place for me to go on, you know, unless I become, you know, the manager over planning or whatever, which, you know, could be possible, but I am starting to see where they are starting to implement secession planning within departments. I think more of that is needed. Hmm. I think we're not utilizing the people that we have in our departments the way we should and could be, giving them the resources and the opportunity to learn about other areas in the department, especially the civilian side of things. And so when you don't have movement, it is going to be hard to retain people, especially you got to think about it. A lot of analysts are, for lack of a better term, dreamers. They're the ones who are thinking of where they're going to be, you know, two, three, five, ten years down the road. And because they're their thirst for knowledge and growth is there. Yeah. And right, you know, not all departments are equipped to handle that. Hmm. All right, well, let's finish up with the last segment sure. then, no interest. For you, you're Native American. And I so that's your way of life. So I, I just don't really have a question. And just how, what do you want to share in terms of telling people about your way of life? Well, I, I live a Native American way of life within my normal everyday life. I participate, you know, in powwows. I like to sing and dance. So I do dance women's traditional. And it's a lot of it's about education. You know, you'd be surprised at people who don't realize that Native Americans exist. They think that, you know, we're extinct, but we're still here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, and the, you know, the thing is, it's, it truly, when you think about where you work, I know at least for me, we are so diverse and what we could learn from one another is amazing. And 
that's been my one of the things that is important to me is to to provide the information and to educate and to share that with my colleagues. And luckily I was able to do that this last year, right before I retired, we were able to hold a cultural event at the police department. And we brought in a, I brought in a drum group, brought in dancers and it was, you know, had displays and everything. And it, it was wonderful. And to see the, you know, we did crowd participation and we had people dancing with us and it was, it was great. I loved it. We we need more. We need more of that. We need more sharing of who we are. Yeah, it is. And I don't have much of a perspective on this. What comes to mind is I live in Tallahassee, Florida. Mm -hmm. And so the Florida State University is the big university here in Tallahassee. And so they are called the Seminoles, right? And right. colleges went through, it's probably been a couple of decades now, but they went through and changed the mascots and some of the namings yes. of some of these colleges because recognizing some of the insensitivities to Native Americans. And right. so, but one of them, which was Florida State was able to keep their name Florida Seminoles. And so when, when I moved down to Tallahassee, I don't know why I expected this, but I expected to go downtown to Tallahassee and see this as a way of life. Like you can recognize it. You can point to it. You can see something. Mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting. Like I can I talk to people, several people that have been here decades and I'm like, what? Where can I see it? What point, point me somewhere, point me some direction that lets me know that, you know, Seminole is ingrained in this city. I have trouble getting a good answer to that question. Well, the, I guess you're looking at it from a different point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, when I say living a Native American way of life is a lot of it is, you know, carrying on rituals, things that, you know, have come through the years you know, to, to me from my ancestors and my elders and dancing, going to a powwow, that is, that is like my church for me. Mm -hmm. And that is keeping that alive, you know, doing drum practice. My son, he does beadwork and artwork, ledger art, which is, you know, Native American ledger art. So it's keeping some of our traditions alive and, you know, ceremonial stuff and rituals alive and sharing what we can. I mean, some people don't realize, you know, like you talk about, you know, changing of names and mascots and things like that, that there's certain words that we wouldn't use for other races, right? Mm -hmm. And the same is true for Native Americans. There's certain terms that you technically shouldn't use because it's a, it's a derogatory term. And a lot of people, it's education. People just don't realize that. I consider myself open-minded to things where I'm necessarily not going to take offense to someone because if they don't know, they don't know, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But like the word powwow, you know, people say, let's powwow, you know, and a lot of times what they're meaning is let's have a meeting, right? So at work, mm -hmm. you say, let's have a powwow. Well, in my mind, that's not a powwow, Yeah. <laughs> you know? For me, a powwow is a gathering of my relatives, and sometimes it's for ceremonial purposes. But I can't expect people to know that unless I tell them. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. So, is, yeah. But so that's what it, I mean, sharing. You, you know, we share with each other different things to, you know, help people understand who we are. And that's across any culture. Yeah. Now, do you feel that there's still 
derogatory words out there that are still part of marketing? You know, it's changing. Yes, I think there will from time to time be terminology and different things misused, but that's in anything. And I think, you know, it's, you can tell when someone's being, you know, malicious and they just don't know, you know, there's a, there's a difference. Someone who's innocent and then someone who's using it because they know what it means and they're doing it to get under your skin, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, There's totally two different things. And so that's things we just need to be aware of. Yeah. Hmm. Good deal. All right. Well, our last segment to the show is words to the world. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Renee, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? You can do anything you want. Just do it. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. All right. (laughs) (laughs) But I do appreciate you being on the show, Renee. Thank you so much. And you be safe. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.